You're listening to a talk given by Father Jim Farrell during the 2020 parish mission at St. Lawrence Catholic Church. We hope you enjoy this talk from one heart and one mind in Christ. So, for this gospel, I'd like to tell it to you in the first person from the viewpoint of somebody in the story so that it might help you to see the story in a little different way. From my birth, I was unable to walk. And I had several friends who were very kind to me. There were four in particular who came to see me one day. They asked me if I would go with them to see Jesus. My friends had a lot of faith in Jesus. So they lifted me off my bed and put me on a stretcher and they carried me through the streets of the city. And as we walked through the streets, all I could see were the shoulders and the heads of people walking around us and the tops of the buildings. And then when we turned over my toes, I could see a house and it was teeming with people. Jesus was in that house. There were so many people in that house that they were coming out the door and they were around the perimeter of the house looking in the windows. And my friends began to talk among themselves how they were going to get me inside to where Jesus was. So they got some ropes and they Two of them shimmied up a tree and leaped on top of the roof. And then they let the ropes down and the other two slid them underneath the stretcher. And then they lifted me up onto the roof of the house. The other two friends, they then joined us there on the roof. And they began to take away some of the tiles. And then they lowered me down right in front of Jesus. And Jesus saw my friends and he knew of their faith in him. And then he looked at me and said, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now there was some murmuring in the crowd. I wasn't sure what was going on but Jesus seemed to know. And he looked at them and said, Why do you harbor such thoughts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or get up and walk? To show you that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, then he looked at me and said, I say to you, get up and walk. 
right then, I could begin to feel something below my hips, something in my legs that I'd never felt before. I imagined it to be the feeling of blood running through my veins. You wouldn't notice it because you've always been able to walk. In a moment's time, I could bend my knees on my own. I could turn my ankle. I could even wiggle my toes. I remember he said, get up. So I rolled over on my side. I put my hand on the ground. I pushed myself up so that I was kneeling. Then I lifted my leg and put my foot on the floor. And I began to stand up. And I got a little unsteady because I'd never been straight up before. Some people reached out to help me get my balance. Then I brought my other foot up. And I remember he said to walk. And I took a step and a second and a third. I could walk. I could walk on my own two feet. I realize you, you've always been able to walk, but imagine what it was like for me who had never been able to walk. I turned around and thanked Jesus. I rolled up the stretcher. I walked out through the crowd, and they all parted like the Red Sea. And I kept walking down that street all the way home. Really, it was more like dancing, skipping along, glorifying God for the goodness he had bestowed on me today. And all the people behind, they were talking among themselves about what an incredible thing they had seen today. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I think we often forget about those people, the people to whom miracles occur. Forget about them because we focus on Jesus, rightly so, and upon his miraculous power. But what about the people that were on the receiving end of miracles. What was it like for them? How often did that young man tell his story throughout the rest of his life? How many times did he glorify God by testifying to everybody around him about how he was able to walk because of Jesus? I wonder, because we don't know much about his faith, what he was thinking when Jesus said to him, my son, your sins are forgiven. Was he thanking God, thinking what a miraculous and wonderful grace this is to be forgiven of my sins? Or was he rather 
uneducated in the ways of faith. Did he know what a sin was? Did he believe that he had committed any? Did he find it curious or did it make him uneasy? Like Jesus looking into his soul and seeing how much he needed forgiveness. We're not so sure about what he thought. Maybe he was kind of on edge, wondering if that was all. Was there going to be anything else that Jesus would do for him that day besides forgive his sins? So when the murmuring in the crowd causes Jesus to go one step further and to say, get up and walk, this young man's life is changed. He goes from being a paralytic, totally dependent upon other people, to being able to stand up on his own and glorify God throughout the rest of his life. I wonder what Jesus is saying to us in this gospel story about the connection between our spiritual and physical well-being. You don't have to go very far in literature today, psychological, spiritual, magazines, to read something about the connection between our spiritual life and our physical life, our spiritual well-being and our physical health. So that if I'm holding on to some resentment, if I carry hatred in my heart, if I'm angry and I won't let go of the anger, if I'm spiteful, seeking revenge, if I've been hurt and I won't let go of the hurt, over time it takes its toll on our bodies might elevate my blood pressure, increase the amount of acid in my stomach to generate an ulcer. It might put strain on my heart, might cause me to eat more out of frustration and gaining weight has other ramifications on my health. And if I hold on to that anger and resentment and bitterness. Sometimes you'll see it in my posture. My fist will be clenched more often than not. Maybe I even begin to see it in the shape of my spine. I'm a little bent over because I'm carrying all this inside of me and I won't let it go. I wonder if Jesus isn't saying to us, pay attention to your soul if you want a healthy body. Pay attention to your mind and your spirit, for they work together. Pay attention, lest you get caught up 
in bitterness and resentment, spitefulness or hatred, jealousy or hurt, and unable to let go of it, we find ourselves paralyzed, frozen in time at a particular time and place where something happened to us that generated these feelings we carry in our heart today. When we hold on to something from the past, we find that we're living that day and time. Something that happened to me you know, on May 15th at 9 in the morning, May 15th of 2012. And if I haven't gotten over it, then I'm still living there in 2012. The calendar is changing, but I'm not living in the present. My mind is caught up with the hurt that was visited upon me that day, or the anger that came as a result of a misunderstanding with another person, or the revenge I seek for something that was done to me, or the heaviness in my heart for feeling left out or excluded in a relationship. And I carry it with me and it has sort of taken over. It preoccupies me. And I can't shake loose of it. Or I choose not to. And when I choose not to, then I'm choosing to hold on to that bitterness, that resentment, that hurt. I'm refusing to let it go. I'm choosing to stay in that part of my life where that incident occurred. And that's going to take its toll on me over time. It's going to affect me in lots of different ways. For example, let's just take two names, Zelda and Anastasia. I'm hoping nobody in the parish has those two names. It's usually pretty safe. So Zelda and Anastasia, they, they were friends for a long time. They did a lot of things together. They'd usually see each other at the 8 o'clock mass on Sunday. A lot of times they'd go for breakfast afterwards. They often ran into each other at the Kroger store when they do their shopping every week. They would walk together at the gym, do their fitness routine at the same time. But Anastasia said something that hurt Zelda's feelings. But Zelda didn't say anything to Anastasia about it. She just recorded the hurt, and then she, she nourished it. She sort of let that hurt grow inside of her. And she became less interested in Anastasia because Anastasia never acknowledged what she had said and asked for forgiveness. So Zelda started going to a different Mass 
so that she wouldn't run into Anastasia. Then Zelda started going to a different grocery store so she wouldn't run into Anastasia. Then she changed the time and day of her workout so she could avoid Anastasia. So Zelda's rearranging her life because of the hurt that she experienced. All the while, Anastasia doesn't have any idea that she hurt her because Zelda never said a thing. I have some friends, they both deceased now, husband and wife. They were married pretty close to 60 years when the first one died. Bob and Pat. And uh, Pat was quite a talker. She talked quite a bit. And she told the story about themselves when they were first married. She said Bob did something that upset her. So she decided that she was going to impose the silent treatment on Bob. She was going to teach Bob a lesson. So she thought, I won't talk to him except for necessary things like take out the garbage. So she didn't talk to Bob. And it was really a penance for Pat because Pat liked to talk. But she thought, we're going to be married a long time and this is important. So the first week went by and Bob didn't say anything. And the second week went by and Bob didn't say anything. And we're up to 30 days that Pat has been imposing the silent treatment and nothing has been said by Bob. Finally, Pat couldn't take it anymore and Pat said, Bob, aren't you going to say you're sorry? And Bob said, sorry for what? And she said, haven't you noticed I haven't been talking to you? And Bob said, well, you did a lot of talking when we first got married, and I just thought you got it out of your system. So I didn't even know you were mad at me. So that whole month went by, you see, and Pat thought she was teaching him a lesson. But Bob, he didn't put two and two together. He didn't realize that there was a silent treatment being imposed. And a lot of times that happens in our relationships. We get our feelings hurt. Somebody does something that offends us, but they don't know that they've offended us. But in the meantime, we're imposing a penalty. We're changing the dynamics of our relationship. We're withdrawing. Maybe after a while, Anastasia has noticed that she hasn't seen Zelda at church or at Kroger or at the gym, and she calls. But Zelda has caller ID, so she just lets it go into voicemail, and she never returns the calls. So when she finally had Anastasia's attention, might have been a good time to say, I was very hurt by what you said, to give Anastasia an opportunity to say, I'm sorry. We can't expect everyone to realize the ways in which we feel put upon where we feel there's been a transgression against us, how we feel we've been hurt. I notice the words Jesus uses on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I think of how true that is so often in our relationships with one another. 
I didn't know you were offended by the joke that I told. I wasn't trying to make fun of you. I'm sorry your feelings got hurt. But a lot of times we don't pay attention to the physical reaction that someone we love has to something we've said, a joke we've made, a language we've used, a humiliation that's come about because of the way we reacted. But that person's hurt, and they're hurt deeply. And unfortunately, in this instance, they're holding on to that hurt. And if we don't notice it, we'll go a long time without having each other in our lives. Because Zelda is waiting for me to say I'm sorry, but I don't even know I've done something to hurt her. That's why we have to work at forgiveness. Because working at forgiveness means setting the other person free, giving them a second chance, and setting myself free too. I want to be free of that. I don't want to carry that around with me all the time. I want to set you free, but I'm setting myself free at the same time. You see, Jesus forgives us. He's not going to carry bitterness into his death. He's not going to carry resentment. He's not going to carry hatred into his death. Being angry at the people that put him there on the cross. He chooses forgiveness. He chooses to set himself free just as he chooses for us to be free by his forgiveness and mercy. He chooses to make us free. And it's a choice. We all make the choice to forgive. And we discover that forgiveness isn't something that happens all at once. Sometimes I have to pray for the person that I want to forgive. I have to pray for weeks and weeks in the hopes that praying for that person will begin to soften my heart so that I'll be in a place where I'm ready to forgive them. And then I might forgive them only to discover a couple of days later another way in which that same hurt has affected my life. You know, I think a lot about ministers when their churches are being burned down by an arsonist. And someone comes along, usually a newscaster, and throws a microphone in front of the pastor, and they say, well, if you're a pastor of a Christian church, do you forgive the person who did this to you? And the pastor says, well, yes, I forgive them. Well, the first thing I notice about that is that it would be pretty hard to forgive when I haven't even fully realized what I've lost. I haven't fully realized what the consequences are of your action. So I want to forgive you. That's my desire. But it will take me some time to forgive because right now while the church is going up in flames, I haven't even assessed what the damages are. And I haven't even looked into the future to see how many different ways is this going to affect me and our congregation. You know, the next day when 
when the ashes have cooled and I can come into the building and I look and see what's been spared and I see what's been lost. And there's going to be some pretty hard, hard feelings. You know, a beautiful crucifix was consumed in the fire. The tabernacle was spared. A wonderful statue that has great history with it has been lost. Some of the pews have been spared. I go through and I take a look and I start asking myself, where are we going to worship next Sunday? And I call around to some of the neighboring churches to find a place where we can have worship. That's the first awareness I have that, of what I've lost. I've lost a place for the community to come together and pray, so I, I have to start forgiving you for that. And then when I meet with the insurance folks, and I find out there's not enough insurance to cover the cost of rebuilding the church, that's another another weight on my shoulder and I, and I have to forgive you again. And then when I think of the people who aren't going to wait for, for us to rebuild, they're going to go off and find some other church to attend and I'm going to lose some members of the parish family and that hurts. And that's another thing I have to forgive you for. And then things don't go so well with the rebuilding and it takes a lot longer than we expected. And every aggravation, every interruption, every surprise is another cause for me to realize how deeply I've been hurt by the act of arson. And I have to work on forgiving that too. I think forgiveness comes in waves. It's a process that takes time and I can't do it all at once. And I can forgive you, but I may find that I have to forgive you again tomorrow. If you've ever read The Shack, a very popular book, and now it became a movie, and I thought they did a wonderful job with the movie. And in that movie, this father is trying to learn how to forgive the person who took away his daughter. And God speaks to him, and finally he gets him to say the words, I forgive you. And the man says, there, I said it. And God says, yes, and you may have to say it a thousand times before you begin to feel like you have forgiven him. Because God understands it isn't just a one-time thing. And saying it once may not bring the action of forgiveness to completion. It's something we keep working at in order to set each other free. Sometimes one action can affect a person's life. You know, you say a rumor about me, and then you realize it was the wrong thing to say, and you come and you ask for my forgiveness, and I forgive you. But six months later, I find out that the rumor is still out there circulating in the community, and I have to forgive you again. And another four months go by and somebody come up and said, I heard something about you. And then they tell me and I say, it's just a rumor, a very bad rumor. And I have to forgive you again. 
So when Jesus says 70 times, seven times, I used to think that was, in other words, all kinds of times that you've been hurt, like hundreds and hundreds of times when people hurt you that you're called to forgive. But sometimes I think it's also just, I might have to give, forgive you a hundred times just for one thing, because that one thing keeps affecting my life. And every time I come up against it, I want to forgive you again. And it's hard to forgive. No one should ever think that's easy. Forgiveness is work. It's the work of a disciple of Jesus. Look at what Jesus went through in order to forgive us of our sins. That gives us a little bit of an idea. Remember, he's at the moment when he has the most excruciating pain in his life. On that cross when he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. So we should realize forgiveness takes everything from us. Requires all of our strength to really let something go. You know, sure, there are some things that are easy to forgive. They're minor infractions. But I mean when we've been hurt deeply. The kind of hurt that we might be tempted to hold on to and have it lock up our souls and lock up our hearts. That kind of transgression, that requires a lot of work to forgive. And we shouldn't expect that we'll be able to do it all at once or right away. But I hope we'll be committed to doing it, to doing the forgiveness. Because that's where we find our way to peace and new life. I was privileged to travel in South Africa during my sabbatical in 1997. And we met with some of the local leaders there and it was shortly after the end of apartheid. And when we met with the local leaders, they said, you know, some of the people that used to be in power, they're very afraid of us being in power now because they're afraid we're going to do to them what they did to us. But we're not interested in doing that. Revenge serves no purpose. For us, the only path to, future, to our future is through forgiveness. We want to forgive so we can move on so that we don't live in the past anymore. And unfortunately, we all know some people who are stuck in the past. They're holding on to something that happened to them a long time ago, either unable or unwilling to forgive. And that action, that event, is still controlling their lives. And the worst part about it is, the person we're withholding forgiveness from probably isn't suffering by the lack of our forgiveness. They may not even be aware that we're holding a grudge. They may not be aware that we haven't forgiven them. They may be out of touch with us and have no idea how that incident has affected us for the past number of years. So the only one suffering here is the person who refuses to forgive. So I really set myself free when I choose forgiveness. In Chicago in the 1980s, a, a teenager killed another teenager, 
murdered him. And this was carried on Nightline back then. And this woman went to the trial thinking that she would get some resolution when she would hear the sentence handed down. And the judge handed down the sentence, and because the boy was a minor, it wasn't a very lengthy sentence. They could only hold him until he was 21. So she went home not feeling much closure. She was looking for some kind of closure. And so that night when she couldn't sleep, she wrote that boy a letter. And as it turned out, the boy in jail wrote her a letter because he couldn't sleep either. So they corresponded. And then one day, she got up the courage to go see him face to face. She asked her parish priest to go. And as it turned out, both the boy who did the killing and the boy who was killed belonged to the same parish. So the priest went with him. And the woman, she carried a box with her. It was a box of pictures of her son. And she started talking to this boy and telling him about her son. And she took out baby pictures and she talked about how they had prayed for a boy. And then she talked, had some pictures of him when he began to walk. She had some pictures of his first tricycle and then his first bicycle. She had some pictures of his first day of school. Then she had some graduation from eighth grade pictures. She had pictures of when he got to his driver's license. And then the pictures stopped. And she talked to the boy about what she would never have, that she would never have pictures of his graduation from high school or his graduation from college. She would never have pictures of his wedding. And she would never have pictures of the grandchildren that he would bring her. And somewhere around this time, that boy who committed that terrible crime started crying, sobbing, really. He cried so deeply, and he said to the woman, Oh my God, what have I done? I'm so sorry. Can you ever forgive me? And the mother said, Yes. I can forgive you. So then afterwards, the commentator asked the woman, how was it that you forgave? She said, I forgave because I saw that he truly understood what he had taken from me, that he really understood who my son was. And it changed their lives. Well, that's sort of the perfect act of forgiveness. That someone comes up to me, tells me that they recognize what they've done to me and how deeply sorry they are, and they ask for my forgiveness. And we give it because we see that they understood how their sin affected us. But that isn't how it happens most of the time. Most of the time it's more like Jesus on the cross. Most of the time, like Jesus looks down from the cross, 
There isn't anybody at the foot of the cross saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Jesus, for my part in putting you there. No. And a lot of times in our lives, we get hurt and the person doesn't really know how they've hurt us. And so they don't come and say they're sorry. But we're still carrying the hurt. And that's why I think Jesus' words on the cross are so important. Because Jesus is in touch with how it often is in our lives. That the people who hurt us don't even know that they've hurt us. And so we have to work at setting the person free. Because we want to be free. We don't want to carry that with us anymore. In the wonderful parable of the prodigal son, we all know the story. The young son does what you might call a money grab. He says, Dad, give me the share of the inheritance that's mine. Takes the money and leaves. Goes off and spends the money on what we call loose living. Doing all kinds of things Dad would never approve of. And then he gets to the point where there's no more money left in his pocket and he gets a job feeding pigs. And the food that he's giving to the pigs is starting to look good to him because he's so hungry. So he says, I know what I'll do. I'll go home because my father treats his servants really well. And I will say to my father, I no longer deserve to be called your son. I have, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Treat me like one of your hired hands. I just want to get back to a place where there's a roof over my head and food on the table. So he starts his way back. And he gets to the crest of the hill and down below is the father's estate and the father happens to be out on the porch as he was every day looking to see if his son was coming. And this day he catches sight of his son and he starts running. He runs up the driveway and then up the road and he throws his arms around his son and holds him tight and he kisses him on both cheeks and, and I suspect that while he's kissing him on both cheeks the son can feel the tears coming down his father's face and the son is thinking to himself I, I can't believe what I've just seen my father was running towards me. I didn't know my father loved me that much. He's running towards me. I think the reason the son doesn't run towards the father and they meet halfway is because the son is awestruck. He's dumbfounded. He's overwhelmed by what his eyes are taking in. The fa my father is running towards me. How is it possible that my father loves me this much? I never knew that my father loved me this much. And he's running towards me. How is it possible? How did I not know this? And then he feels his father's embrace and the kisses. And then the father says, put a ring on his finger, the ultimate sign that you belong to the family. Put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, put the finest robe on him, and kill the fatted gaff so we can celebrate.
So I'm thinking this boy is trying to process what he's just witnessed. An extraordinary evidence of his father's love for him. He had no idea. He was a typical young man who thought he knew more than everyone else in the world and who didn't have any understanding about his father at all. And when he sees his father run, I think it changed that man forever to know that his father loved him that much. Well, this is the way God, uh, Jesus describes for us the Heavenly Father. The Heavenly Father runs towards us to wrap his arms around us, to offer us forgiveness, to kill the fatted calf and rejoice, for we have come home to God every time we come back to confession and ask for forgiveness and mercy. On the days that we acknowledge our sins and receive God's merciful love, God says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who have no need of repentance. So yes, he kills the fatted calf every time one of us come home. Every time we turn towards home like that young boy does, he turns towards home. Whenever we turn towards God, God is rejoicing. For he loves us. And he wants there to be no separation between us and him. He wants us to come home, to have a seat at the table, to partake of his son's body and blood, to have all of our hungers satisfied, to be nourished by his love. He just wants us to know his love is unconditional and his mercy is everlasting. Pope Francis has a wonderful phrase, and he says, God never tires of forgiving us. We will get tired of asking for forgiveness before God would ever get tired of forgiving us. I think that sums up the sacrament of reconciliation perfectly. God sets us free. He'll do it over and over and over again because of his love. So tonight, there's an opportunity for those of you who would like to experience that merciful love of God. In your little booklet is Ten Commandments that you can look over in order to examine your conscience and prepare yourself for the sacrament. Father Dave and Father Bob and I are here and um, we'll be in... Uh, I think Father Dave will take the parish reconciliation room and Father Bob's going to take the, uh, the man behind the curtain space here and I'll be in the confessional here. Um, and you are welcome to come if you like. And not to worry if you haven't been in a long time, don't worry about the mechanics. We are accustomed to people not remembering how to go to confession. There is a copy of the Act of Contrition in your booklet and you can say that when you come in, if, at the, we'll tell you when to do that. And just to know of God's mercy and his love for you and his desire to set you free so that you're not holding on to anything that might get in the way of you being whole and healthy and holy. 
Just pray as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.